Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt U podcast. This is Adam Butler, and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of Resolve Asset Management. Today's conversation is with Alexander Mond, Senior Investment Analyst and Head of Investment Research at RPM Risk and Portfolio Management in Stockholm, Sweden. RPM is an alternative investment firm focusing on directional investment strategies, specifically managed futures and global macro. Alex is responsible for portfolio management, quant and macro research, manager screening and selection at the firm. We spend the first few minutes discussing the experience of living with COVID-19 in Sweden before moving on to the technical discussion. We explore the evolving role of managed futures and trend following both in terms of client expectations and how managers have adapted strategies to deal with the current macro environment. In contrast to many similar firms, RPM takes an active approach to manager risk exposure. Alex describes how the firm manages risk both horizontally by changing relative manager allocations through time and vertically by scaling exposure to the overall portfolio in response to proprietary models. Alex opens a kimono on two of RPM's most useful indicator suites, the Comase model designed to identify conditions that may lead to coordinated market sell-offs, and the MDI model that measures the aggregate trendiness of market conditions. We walk through case studies to better understand how RPM uses the tools in practice and their potential value add. Alex is clearly a passionate, no-nonsense quant, and it's clear RPM thinks about the problem in a novel way with commensurately attractive results. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Alex Mond. Today, we've got Alex Mond. Alex, where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm working for RPM Risk and Portfolio Management. Yeah, right. And you spent the weekend in Germany. You also play for a band, right? I also play in a band. I was in Germany from last Tuesday until this Sunday. You do that a lot. You travel back and forth and play some gigs. And do you play some gigs well, in Sweden too or only in Germany? Yes, but pre-corona, I traveled a lot every month. But now it's more twice since then. So okay, things have come down significantly. Are you noticing that things are starting to pick up again from a corona standpoint? Or what is the situation there? Well, there are no shows, live theater, stuff like that in Sweden. We have like a 50 people max target threshold. Any event above 50 people is not allowed. And in Germany, they have over the summer adjusted it to, I think, depending on what kind of event it is, to 10 or 20% of the regular, the normal capacity. So, for example, last Friday, we played a show at a venue with 400 people and they sold only 60 tickets. Yes, and you have to buy the table like at CTA conferences or awards. So you had to buy tables for four people or eight people. And then only when you sit down at the table, you're allowed to take off your mask. Otherwise, you have to move around with a mask on. 
Incredible. Do you find it changes the vibe at the performance? <laughs> yes, totally, I would say. We're not going to do it again, I think. Oh, really? Hey? That's too bad. And things are really kind of ramping up there again, right? So it's not going to get better in the near term, probably. No, I think these temporary solutions, they will be gone before the year end and they were going to be too strict. No, like social distancing rules and no concerts, no football, no, no nothing. Wow. Okay. So you operate RPM out of Stockholm and that's your sort of full-time job. And so tell me a little bit about RPM. What I know is that RPM started in 93 and it is owned by our CEO and two other partners. And since then, we have been doing basically the same thing. We are fund of fund, but a special one. First of all, we don't invest in funds. We only invest in separately managed accounts. So we have full transparency and daily liquidity to all the investments that we make in managers. Second thing is that we don't invest across the whole alternative investment strategies universe. We only invest in strategies that trade futures and exchange trade options. So basically CTA strategy or systematic global liquid, global macro kind of strategy. That's the two main things to know about us. Otherwise, we apply strategy balancing. So we invest in not only in trend following CTAs, but across the whole spectrum. But we have identified at this point four to five sub-strategies within the CTA space that we invest across. And what I hear, I don't know, but what I hear is that what sets us apart from other people like Efficient or Abby, for example, is that we are quite active in managing the overall allocation to our managers horizontally in terms of allocating between managers and strategies, but also vertically in terms of managing the overall trading level or the leverage if we see opportunities going forward or if we think the environment for CTAs is too risky. You mentioned four or five categories. So what are those categories and how do you define them? Well, the main category is trend following, although I have to admit that even this category has evolved significantly since 2008. So there's something that we call hybrid trend following or trend following plus X because none of the new managers that started trading after 2010 is doing pure trend following these days. They are adding something else to the mix. That's why we call it trend following plus X or hybrid trend following. That's the first category. Second category for us is short-term trading, we call it, but that is technical, which is not trend, but most, but we would call it directional technical trading. So contrarian strategies, mean reversion kind of strategies, that area. Third category is systematic global macro or what we would call fundamental trading. So typical manager names there would be QMS from the US or IPM from Sweden or ADG from, from London, these kind of managers. So global macro, but in a systematic way. Fourth category, which we started allocating to almost five years ago is VIX volatility trading. And the managers that we find there can trade the strategy directly through VIX futures or options-based, but they are exposed to volatility as a risk and reward factor. The last category, which we just identified in the beginning of this year, is what we could call systematic commodity trading, which is typically your relative value calendar or intermarket spread kind of trading strategy. We've known some of the managers in that area for a long time, but as a group, 
we have identified them first this year because it's this kind of retifelical calendar spread trading has always been a part of other strategies, not on a standalone basis. And how do you allocate between the different types of funds? Do you sort of you group them up and then you allocate a certain amount of risk per group? And is that relatively stable or is that dynamic through time? Let me share a slide with you for our investment process. I hope this works now. Let's see. Application. This one. And then we do full screen. So this is our investment process here. You can see that, I hope. So basically at RPM, we have three decisions to make. One is which managers do we select or which accounts do we close? That's decision number one. Second decision is how much weight do we want to put on each sub-strategy? As you can see, this is quite an old slide. We haven't added VIX or commodity trading there yet. I need to talk to some guys here at RPM about that. So, and typically our weight to trend following would be 50% or higher to trend following strategies and 50% or lower to all diversifying strategies combined. And there we have a quite even distribution between the diversifying strategies. Third decision we can make here is, as I said in the beginning, adjust the vertical, the leverage, the trading level of the overall portfolio. So normally we move between 120% of long-term target risk to 80% of long-term target risk. That's our fluctuation band, so to speak. And we take in on this slide two kinds of information sets, macro and market data like everybody else. But given that we all have separately managed accounts from our managers and we have quite an extensive database reaching back almost 20 years, we also make use of proprietary position data and strategy performance data and so forth and have built some indicators based on that that help us with our decision making. So let me stop sharing the screen here. So on the trend side, does a manager go into the trend style bucket by virtue of what they say they are? Or do you have some other sort of style analysis or returns-based analysis that you conduct to ensure that they are mostly trend or complementing the trend sleeve? That's part of the diligence process. I would put, I would divide into three stages. First one is monitoring, where you basically you try to achieve, you think you know what's going on in the universe, new managers, development of asset management, what strategies have performed well or bad. Second part is manager screening. That is basically when we have a manager that we find interesting is on our watch list. We don't have a medium, long or short list. We call it watch list. That's always two to 12 managers on their pair sub strategy. And to this stage, I would basically go with what the managers say they're doing. So I would take their word. But once we get to the real investment due diligence or operational due diligence process, where we do the number crunching and check correlations, performance, crisis, alpha characteristics, and so forth, there I would check how much trend following that actually is or that what the managers say. And do you try to balance the trend allocations along the trend term structure and across different specifications of trends? So sort of more the time series momentum, the moving average crossovers, the breakout strategies, that kind of stuff. What's the thinking around that? Well, the breakout stuff, which has a maybe holy period of below 15 days, we would actually put that in the shorter trading bucket because that can very much be a reversal kind of trading in the, in the larger trend moves. Otherwise, in the trend following bucket itself, 
we are diversified across trading horizons as well. So we have, I would say, the most long-term manager that we have only reallocates monthly. That's something that we find very unique among the trend-following managers. And we have a manager that is very short-term with a 20% trading horizon. So everything in between there and most of the managers also with multi-time horizon trading. So that's, we are set up across time horizons, I would say. So the monthly, the manager, they trade monthly? Well, they have a reallocation on a monthly basis, but they have risk management, of course, on a daily basis, if anything goes. Interesting. Okay. And when they trade monthly, is it the same day every month or do they trade like one twentieth of their portfolio every day? Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. We like unique managers. It can be unique good or unique bad, but in, in the mix, even unique bad can add value to the overall portfolio. So as long as it's something that contributes to keeping diversification within the portfolio high, that's something that we like. So one thing within the trend, I've always been sort of curious, and I chatted offline with Marat and some of the other people at Abbey, for example, that run fund of hedge funds or fund of managed accounts for in the CTA space. And I always wonder just how much diversity can you get from multiple managers in the trend space? I mean, there's only so many ways to define trend and so many different time horizons for look back shapes of the look back structure that you can use. I mean, we've done some decompositions of, for example, if you take everything from five days to 300 days, time series momentum, moving average crossovers, double moving average crossovers, triple moving average crossovers, breakouts, et cetera. And you examine the time series and you can do this with just like Brownian time series or with real time series. And what we find is that there's really, you can decompose and capture 80 or 90% of the variance of the entire trend space with like eight different trend specifications. So I always wonder just how much extra diversity do you find you can get by adding an incremental trend manager? Well, the best example is to look at real performance, which I think is during this year's corona crisis. And I think it was also the year 2019 when there was a big, rather large dispersion across trend following on a yearly basis. And my view or our RPM's view on this is that There are so many degrees of freedom you can play with in your setup of the program that it makes the managers quite different from each other, even if the underlying risk factor they're trying to exploit, time series momentum, is the same. So if you, for example, just if you have fixed sector allocations or you have dynamic sector allocations, it makes a huge difference. One trend follow manager we have doesn't trade any commodities at all. Another manager has actually, by design, almost 50% of the exposure is commodity. So that makes a lot of difference. And the same with the time horizons. You can have fixed time horizons or you can have dynamic shifting of your models towards different time horizons. And once you add uh, what we call hybrid trend follow managers to the equation, you can have all kinds of performance. If you Once you add in other factors, you mean? Yeah. So example, a manager that we were invested in until last year was John Street. And they have one third of their trading is a relative value calendar commodity spread trading. So that definitely gives a different profile to the other trend following managers. Got it. Out of the five, I think there were five sleeves. Let me go through them. So there's trend, short-term, fundamental. Fundamental, VIX, commodity. VIX. Yeah, five. What was the fifth one then? That was four. Systematic commodity. Systematic commodity, right. So out of the five sleeves, I know like obviously trend has had a very difficult five years, arguably 
most trend has had a relatively difficult 10 years. Any strategies stand out over the last five or 10 years that have sort of made up for the challenges for trend? Trying to generalize, I would say short-term trading, or which has not in absolute terms, but in terms of portfolio protection, has shown its worth during the VIX events 2018 and again this year. So that is a strategy that we are very happy with. On the other hand, the short-term trading universe is so diverse within itself, so so many different kind of strategies. During the In the midst of the corona crisis, we had a manager up 32%, another manager down 28 or something, so at the same volatility target, so that can be even more heterogeneous than the trend-following block. Yeah, no doubt. Otherwise, in the VIX volatility trading space, there is the most going on in terms of new managers and new interesting ideas. I would say not two managers I've met since the last three years are doing the same thing in the VIX volatility trading space. So that's where really I feel there's currently the managed futures creativity hotspot, so to speak. Got it. And how are you observing that trend managers, what do you call them, hybrid trend or trend X or hyper trend or something? But what are they adding typically? Or what are some of the things that they're adding to the mix? And I guess they're adding it because trend itself is just not quite reliable enough anymore on its own for a single manager to be able to generate the profit profile that will attract investors? Generally, the whole idea of this hybrid trend following is the same as with the multi-strategy managers such as QMS, for example, or is to smooth overall performance, right? That's the whole point, to overcome the drawbacks of the pure strategy and, and in terms of trend following, you can choose to either smooth your whipsaw losses during times where there are no trends or to try to counteract the giveback losses when there is a major reversal. So and different hybrid trend following managers have chosen different paths, so to speak. And the managers that we have now, I would say one is trying to, they will be less down in February and more up in March because they are profiting from the reversal. And another hybrid trend following manager will be less down during whipsaw periods, like, for example, this summer. And so what are some of the other edges that they're adding to the trend following sleeves to increase stability? Through this kind of diversification within the trend following space, they are in the gray zone, for example, between short-term trading, what we should call short-term trading and trend following. And so we basically have this whole cascade of trading horizons that we cover. So if we think the markets are turning or the, it's the mar- our portfolio is vulnerable to reversals, we will allocate more to the short-term trading and the hybrid trend-following space and less to the standard trend-following managers. So it's a whole... Okay, so yeah, so that speaks to the active role that RPM plays in the management of the portfolio. So why don't you go into that in more detail? Because I think that actually is a very unusual dimension of RPM's business, where you actually, you're very active in trading, allocating risk between managers and in managing overall portfolio risk. Just check where I have my slide here. Let me share the screen again. Application, this one, and then we go to, so, all right, if that's okay, I want to walk you through three trading examples, which are all taken from the great Corona crisis, because that's the last major crisis and again a crisis where people ask where is my crisis alpha typically and 
The first example is going to be more complicated. Therefore, I have to take a little detour and explain some of RPM's indicators that we use. And the other two examples are simple position management where we think something is out of the ordinary, not acceptable in terms of portfolio concentration risk or in terms of aggregate exposure. So we have several indicators, but one of the most important indicators that we use, the so-called coordinated market sell-off indicator. And here on this graph, what do I mean by coordinated market sell-off? Reversals are a regular characteristics of financial markets as they move along from one equilibrium to another. But what we call a coordinated market sell-off, you might also call VIX or correlation spikes. We define a coordinated market sell-off as a day where RPM has a major down day, so we lose more than two standard deviations. And at the same time, approximately one-fifth of all financial markets that we monitor also have a volatility spike of more than two standard deviations. So it's a real correlation and volatility spike that hurts our performance. And we started noticing or started the research at the first sell-off here, China sell-off on February 27th, 2007, if anyone remembers that one. Then we had the onset of the subprime crisis here and the quant sell-off in August 16th. Uh, we had an, our indicator was up and running by mid-2008, protecting us a little bit from the oil sell-off 2008 on July 17th and so forth. So normally these sell-offs or these spikes, performance recovers quite quickly, but we try to, if we can cushion our performance during these sell-off days or make it less hurt, then we can add a lot of value on top of our portfolio. And the indicator itself is quite simple. We do a daily probit regression analysis and then we mix a lot of data with a lot of different data frequencies. So the monthly and weekly data doesn't change on a daily basis, obviously. So we have macro data in there like macroeconomic activity or central bank activity. And the idea is the more the fundamental variables change, the less likely there is a coordinated market sell-off because when the fundamentals change, then markets have to adapt to the new market environment and we will be moving to a new equilibrium. If there is no fundamental information, then there is more room for speculative, fast money flows in and out, which are more likely to occur during these volatility spikes. Interesting. We also have market data in there. For example, we measure all the CFTC's futures data. They have categorization for commercial and non-commercial positions there. And the non-commercial players in the futures market normally are banks or hedge funds. And it's basically the same idea there. If there's more speculative, non-commercial money flowing around in the futures market, then it's more likely that we have these kind of sudden sell-offs than if only Shell and Cargill are, are trading. How are you measuring that using the, C the CFTC data, for example? Well, you can just download it from their server, the positioning, and then you can net it out. And then you have net position, net spec. Across many markets or are you looking all at- All markets, all markets that are on the CTC. So, And then we have daily proprietary data, which we can only have due to our usage of uh, managed accounts. And there we have different kind of concentration risk measures. For example, measuring the correlation between our trend volume bucket and our diversifying strategy bucket, or for example, measuring the similarity of positions between different trend following managers. And again, the idea is there, if everybody's doing the same thing, if short-term traders and VIX traders and 
trend following managers are profiting all from the same sector or from this or at the same time, then we don't have enough diversification in the portfolio. So this is dangerous. We do this on a daily basis and we define a risk above 20 as high. And this is in the graph is the last five years here. So the orange is our daily out of sample estimate of a coordinated market sell-off risk. And the vertical, I would call them pink lines, are when we have actually seen these events. And as you can see, we don't get them all, but we get some and we act on them. Normally, we reduce our risk by 20% if we have high coma C risk above 20%. And that is generally the threshold. So 20% in either direction. If I recall, you can be 120% of risk. No, no. The output from a probable regression can only be between zero and one. I see. Okay. But there was some model that you used to be able to increase your risk above 100%. It must not yes. be this indicator. Okay. Gotcha. Thank you very much to, for doing the introduction to my next slide. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasure. This is what happens when you do your homework. You get ahead of the guest. All right. Yes. No problem. All right. <laughs> the other indicator that we use is called the market divergence indicator or index. It has been in use since the mid-90s in different versions. So it's been updated regularly and extended and researched over and over again. But in a nutshell, it's basically our way of measuring time series momentum across futures markets. Time series momentum is the term coined by Moskowitz et al. in their seminal paper from 2012 and to set it apart from cross-sectional momentum. And basically what we do is we relate the daily absolute price changes to the underlying volatility. And we do that for many different markets and across many different time horizons. So we basically, for example, we have the absolute price change over a five-day look-back period and then the underlying price fluctuation for this five-day period. We do that across all futures markets and we go all the way to 250 days look-back period. And as you can see, when this indicator is moving up, then we have time series momentum in the marketplace. We have trends across different markets. We have trends across different time horizons. As you can see in this graph, if we had plotted there the SOCGEN CTA index, that is normally when the CTA universe profits, when these time series momentum is increasing. What goes up must come down. So once we have seen a trending environment, the, what to expect going forward is that these trends will reverse or disappear. That is normally not a good environment for trend-following managers. And so we use this indicator, how you call it, vice versa. So if this indicator is very low, we see it as an opportunity. So we would normally consider increasing risk, something that we actually did now since August. And if this indicator has reached a local maximum, a peak, then we say, okay, this current trend period is over. We have to reduce risk. And what normally happens is that this coordinated market sell-off indicator and the MDI indicator signal a risky environment at the same time or around at the same time, and that would make us reduce risk significantly in the portfolio. And we can jump in to an example, if that's okay yeah, great. with you it. guys. Okay, I need to share something else here. Chrome tab, share. So you can see this? Yes. Yes, all right. So this is our interactive website for our clients where you can see daily fact sheets and positions. You can do all kinds of scenario analysis where we post our research, but we also have a page for our indicators. For example, the coordinated market sell-off indicator, which we call Coma C. And if I go back to February 
of this year, you can see how it is picking up. And you can see on February 12th that it reaches the 20% threshold here. So on February 12th, we decided to decrease risk across the portfolio by 10%, but especially by reducing the allocation to trend-following managers. So that was maybe a week early, but as I remember correctly, the sell-off started on February 21st because that was my birthday and I was at the carnival in Cologne. So Your that's birthday where is the... February 21st? My birthday fourth, is February fourth. 21st. All right, cool. <laughs> that is wild. All right, so that's where we initially started reducing risk across the portfolio. And now let me walk you here. You have the MDI and let me take you back. I think it was mid-March. I think the 10th here. And you see in the second week of March, March 10th, you can see a major spike in the MDI index here, the orange line just jumping up. That was the fastest increase in time series momentum that we have on our records. That was the week after Trump banned travel from the Europe and the equity markets just fell off a cliff. I remember it. These two indicators made us reduce risk even more. So we had a 80% target risk on. Trend following was significantly below its long-term average levels. And now, then we had the bounce back in late March, obviously. But now let's fast forward here to this index to mid-April. In the Comacé, you see, we had two of these sell-offs, obviously, which were correctly forecasted. And now you can see that the coordinated mark sell-off risk has dropped down significantly below its 20% threshold. At the same time, if we fast forward also to mid-April here, you can see that also the time series momentum indicator, the MDI, has come down to long-term average levels and sounding the all-clear, both indicators. So we took back risk to normal levels officially on April 23rd. Gotcha. And overall, this tactical risk reduction had added 1.4% to overall performance. So otherwise, our portfolio would have been down more than it actually was. So that was quite a successful intervention by us, I would say. Excellent. And we've done the same thing before VIX Magellan, I think it's called, in February 2018 and so forth. Love it. So I'm sure people are going to be curious, where are we today with those indicators? Are you able to share? Obviously. Sorry, I need to share my screen again. <laughs> I was too fast there. Today is the... 20th of October. 20th. It's a great tool. Did you build that internally or did you... Yeah, yeah of course. That's all before you got those solutions just to buy them. What did you build it in? I think we have had this, the first version of this 12 years ago, 15 years ago. So currently the MDI is at its long-term average, just around one has been taken up this month. This month is positive across portfolios and almost also across managers here. There are some trends, but it's not a major trend environment yet. Actually, we believe we had a mail out two weeks ago. We believe that normally... The best period for CTAs is the fourth quarter, but it's significantly different during election years. In election years, you have all the trend environment that you see normally in October, November, December, concentrating to after the election is over. So we expect trends in either direction to pick up significantly after November 3rd or some point at November. Right. November 3rd. Okay. That makes sense. And... Coordinated market sell-off risk here is Very ultra low. low, and that is because we are 
you can see it here, but I can tell you is that we are very diversified across managers and sub-strategies. We basically have no net US dollar exposure. We are long bonds, but there are managers with significantly short bonds exposure as well. So it's diversified away, so to speak, the risk here, the set-off risk. Gotcha. What else are you working on? Have you added any indicators in the last little while or have those been in place for many years and they are sufficient and you're not really seeing any need for new ways to view markets given the changes in behaviors recently? Actually, thank you for asking. If you remember the coordinated market sell-off indicator picture I just shared, it shows you that we missed two sell-offs in October 2018. I did notice that. That triggered a re-evaluation and an update of the indicator. And we found a better input factor. We added a new input factor. And basically, we measure the portfolio's US dollar bond position versus its US dollar equity position. So when and they're being both short high bonds and short equities at the same time is not a good thing. When you've got high exposure to equities and bonds at the same time, you say? No, short bonds and short stocks. That's not good. Oh, I see. I gotcha. So that's been added. It's not added to our website, but we run it internally. And the indicator behaves very different from the existing one. So we are still evaluating. The new one would have missed the February sell-off, for example, but would have taken the one in October. So we are thinking about a combination of the two, but we are not there yet. So we have to evaluate. Yeah, well, you want diversity of signals. Some of them are going to pick up on different types of coordinated market sell-off environments and others will pick up on different ones. So that's kind of ideal. What has changed in terms of your manager identification and selection process over the years? Are you doing things the same way right now as you did five years ago? Or how do you think about identifying new managers? What are you looking for when you're monitoring them for a while? What causes you to pull the trigger? Well, we have to differentiate between pre and post corona, obviously. The monitoring process is still the same. We have, on a weekly basis, I get an email from our database telling me if there is a new addition to the Barclay Hedge database, that's or Barclay CDA database, that's where most managers report to. If there is a new entry, I normally read the trading strategy description. I normally do some rough correlation analysis, and then I classify the manager by one of 20 sub-strategy categories that we have. And is that qualitative? based on how they describe their strategy or are you running? I guess you don't have much data, so. No, but let's say if you are a trend-following manager and you, you are down in certain months when everybody else was up, then something's wrong, obviously. But normally I go with a description there. Okay. But sometimes, for example, we have more categories there. For example, it's, if a manager, which I've never met, is saying something, they're doing something systematic in currencies, I don't know if this is trend or short-term trading. So they get the category systematic FX trader. Gotcha. And, and then... the second step that we do is we get a ranking on a monthly basis, the top 20 performing managers. And 19 of the 20 we know have been invested in or are invested in or decided not to invest in for several reasons. But if there is a name that we have never heard of, then obviously it's my turn to pick up the phone and call that manager and get to know them and put them on a watch list. That's the second part of the monitoring process. And once we have the managers on the watch list, we do the, do the full diligence always in groups because we also, I forgot that to mention in the, the beginning, we focus on the smaller and younger managers. So what we call evolving or emerging managers. Our experience has shown that we cannot afford to do one due diligence process per manager. We always cluster them together in 
groups of four or five managers and then we do the whole due diligence process because those managers sometimes cannot deliver all the data that we need or not in the time that we need. And so once the watch list is filled up with, let's say, five to eight names, I make a presentation to the investment committee and we discuss each manager in length. And of course, I have to have a conference call with them before and I tell them about my experience with the manager or I have met them in person. And then they, they decide the four names which do the full diligence on. And pre-corona, there was always also conferences like the MFA or the metrics a long time ago where you actually met people and sometimes you met managers that did not even show up in the database because they never they had not started reporting or anything like that. These kind of events have totally stopped. So it's going to be hard for us to find new managers if they don't start reporting. We have some contacts at our brokers, at SOCGEN, for example, or at other CAP intro teams that make suggestions to us because they know what we're looking for. But I think we're going to miss those conferences in the long run going forward. Yeah, just to be able to be introduced to managers that are a little bit off the beaten path, not reporting to the typical databases and stuff. Now that makes sense. What goes into the operational due diligence? I mean, you've got this sort of basic boxes you've got to tick, I guess. But then for the managers that tick all the general boxes in terms of operational integrity and approvals and multiple custodians and all of the sort of operational and compliance things, what else are you looking for that differentiates a manager that says, this is somebody that I want to look more closely at? Well, that takes us back to the investment due diligence because we have two different processes. So the operational due diligence is only to tick the boxes, as you said, to reference calls, on-site visit, now we're going to do Zoom or MS Team. On-site visits, obviously, verifying the track record, stuff like that. That's only to tick the boxes. And we are, as we only invest through our own managed accounts, the, we are, the operational risk is quite limited, actually, in the investments that we make. From the investment part, what we are looking for in a manager is performance, diversification, and uniqueness. That would be my three words in a nutshell. Obviously, we want absolute performance. But if you have a track record that has no down months, then something's wrong. Obviously, so we have to understand where the performance comes from and we have to understand the weaknesses also. And that's also why we only invest in systematic strategies because we want these strengths and weaknesses to be repeatable and reliable. So we, as a allocator, can add value on top of that. How do you overcome the issue of a manager who is truly... Do I mean, it's, it's a strange relationship because... For much of our evolution, for example, we really were not doing anything that was really, truly novel. You could look through our performance and see, okay, yeah, they've got allocation to trends at these tenors and they've got allocation to carry. And if you've got some more esoteric factors that you can perform some style analysis on, you might also observe that we've got some skewness exposure, some seasonality, that kind of stuff in there. But we were very open about it you've been through our deck, you see like we're very open about what we're doing. But as you get into managers who are doing something different, it's a different kind of conversation. The manager doesn't want to disclose and the performance itself is not enough to give you any sort of real confidence and significance. So how do you overcome that potential challenge? Let me rephrase here. For example, what you just described, we have over 100 manager contacts per year. What you described is pretty unique in the manager universe that we meet. The broadness of your approach is a unique factor in itself. So that puts you apart from other managers, multi-strat managers I have come across, for example. 
Other factors for trend-following manager can be, for example, a manager, no, no names here, but their first position is the strongest trend signal, obviously. That's the largest position. But the second position is not the second strongest signal, but the second position is the one that is most diversifying to the first one. So it doesn't have anything to do with any trend signals. And hearing that makes total sense intuitively. But why not? Of course, then it's basically cross-sectional hedging within your trend-following system. doesn't sound like rocket science to me. But at the time when I met that manager, that was over four or five years ago, that's the first time I've ever heard that from a manager, describing it that clearly and that plainly. And that was a unique factor, for example. So it doesn't have to be any rocket science or anything like that. It's just... But it's different. Yeah, it's different. It's sort of analogous. It's sort of a heuristic way to create, to maximize exposure to trend while also simultaneously maximizing diversification in the portfolio and not getting overly concentrated. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I guess what or, I'm getting at is... If I can make another example, for example. If sure, you yeah, great. Another trend for, So another long-term trend-following manager has like, okay, basically we try not to get whipsawed. That's why we use long-term trend-following for entry signals. Fair enough. Heard that before. But at the same time, we create some asymmetry for getting out. So there we have a 99 times 99 matrix over the different trading horizons. And if this matrix has more than 51% telling us to get out, then we close the position. So basically, they're faster on the way out than they're on the way in. Nice. Has its strengths, has its weaknesses, but it's definitely it's a unique setup. Got it. And so you want them to, have, to be doing something a little bit different. And then you're observing the performance. And this is always the tricky thing for me because it's easier to identify managers who are doing something wrong. Yes. But it's much harder to identify or to distinguish between managers who are doing something different and managers who are just luckily exposed to some systematic risk that they're not consciously aware of, but that can change at any moment and completely render their strategy ineffective. This is the challenge with the returns-based selection criteria. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Well, we have managed accounts again. So, and we have a real-time performance system here as well. So we can, during the corona crisis, we checked every quarter, but normally we check every maybe three times a day or something. We update the real-time performance. So we see on a daily basis what the managers are doing and what contracts they're profiting from. And of course, we are not perfect and there's nothing, there are no guarantees, but if there's anything out of the ordinary or if we observe a style drift or we question why the manager has performed the way they have, we schedule a conference call, get an update, or we do some reanalysis. Or in the most simple terms, if something seems off, we just set the allocation to zero. It has happened this year, three times actually already. So then it's about intervening quickly to protect the overall portfolio. I like it. I wasn't really referring to that. I was more so just as you are deciding on managers to allocate to, you're observing performance. And as you're observing performance, if there are major outliers, now you've got reasons to ask questions. Negative outliers, both outliers, I think, are reasons to ask questions. But if you just have a manager that looks like it is performing well, there are no major outliers. How do you think about distinguishing between skill and luck? We actually also have position data on a daily basis. So we actually react on that too, if you have outliers there. I could give you an in example terms of as well. excess concentration or they're only making money in one market really or that kind of stuff? Yes. 
and then we would intervene as well. I can just, do we have some time? Yeah, go for it, please. Share some slide here. Back to this presentation. Let me just fast forward. This graph is less complicated than it looks. So that's our position data of, for the different managers in one of our portfolios on March 25th. And there you have the different sectors, FX US, FX Asia, commodity metals, commodity softs, so and so forth. You have the overall risk measured in the red line there. And it is always compared to the green line, which is the long-term average sector exposure. And what you can see there is that the risk in metals is sticking out, and very much so. Then you have the columns there, and this is how much the underlying managers contribute to the overall risk in each sector. So it also helps you to see where you can find diversification or if the portfolio is very concentrated. But on that day, the main thing that we were concerned with was this, that it is one manager who is basically driving the overall metals exposure. And so did you inquire with that manager? Was that a cause to reach out? There was, of course, a cause to reach out. There was also a cause to reduce the allocation. It was actually the manager profited actually from that move. But from our risk management perspective, from a manager of managers, this allocation was prudent to reduce risk in this sector. Okay. So who's a typical client of yours and what are they looking for? That has changed dramatically since I started. When I started 15 years ago, we basically did white labeling CTA solutions for Japanese clients for their structured products, could be banks or corporate pension funds. Since this kind of investment vehicle has, due to the low interest rate environment, there's not demand for that anymore. So since 2000. 10, 2013, two different portfolios, we've launched our own flagship funds where actually our name is on there. So the RPM Galaxy CTA fund and the RPM Evolving CTA fund. And their clients are mostly from Europe, Sweden, German-speaking Europe, Netherlands. And there we have family offices, private banks here in Sweden, also some corporate pension funds. What's the difference between the two funds? RPM Evolving is aiming at smaller, younger managers. We find that these managers have Possibly some outperformance, but they're definitely even more diversified among themselves than managers of different sub-strategies if they are big. And Galaxy is a portfolio of big managers, so your typical CTA names. What are clients looking for? Have the needs of clients changed over the last little while? Has the COVID crisis changed people's expectations or what are you observing there? We're always happy if the CTA industry measured as the Barclay B Top 50 or the Secretary CTA is doing well, because that means the whole industry is doing well. And most of the money is unfortunately in the big names, otherwise there wouldn't be the big names. But what we have noticed since at least the last three years is that the smaller managers significantly outperform the larger managers, which basically means the people that are interested in our portfolio solutions are looking. They have already CTA allocations in Sweden. There are three names, basically. And they're looking for something else to diversify from this one manager that they have and that have, has disappointed them in the last three or four sell-offs. Well, what do you think it is about emerging managers that allow them to maybe generate a little bit more excess alpha? I would say... 20% of the new managers are the future stars. There are, there's new talent out there. They try new ideas, which maybe if they had worked at, I don't know, AHL before, all their research ideas going into this institutional process of proving or not approving and takes forever. They get frustrated, start their own shop. 
For example, we were invested in ADG until they had 1 billion from 120 million until they had 1 billion. We were invested in John Street, as I said, when they had below 100 million, actually, until they now have become too big. So there are future stars, future big names out there that we are looking for. I don't know if it's a virtue or coming with the fact that there's only often two or three people running the show there, is that the strategy are more pure. They're exploiting more like one risk factor, not trying to exploit all of them. So that can also be an advantage from a portfolio's perspective. They run at a higher volatility, which makes more sense from us, combining we have currently 30 managers in the portfolio and we have a target volatility of 15%. And it's actually quite hard to get up to the target volatility if you have managers that are so diversified among themselves. So the good thing is if they have high incoming volatility, some of those managers that we have, we would never invest in on a standalone basis, given that if you have 30% or more volatility, that's nothing you want as an end investor, so to speak. I was wondering if it maybe also is due to the fact that they can trade faster signals and they can trade in more frontier markets and less liquid markets, trade a little further out the term structure. They're able to take advantage of things because they don't need the same amount of liquidity that larger funds do. That's true for most larger managers versus smaller managers, but not for all. For example, a manager called ISEM, they make a thing out of it to really be diversified and have really high commodity exposure and go to the what we would call niche commodity markets as well. So you have the big guys doing that as well. I can imagine that it is an advantage if you are in those markets and you're a smaller player that you don't leave a footprint or so and that you can be faster in and out with less slippage and stuff like that. Excellent. Well, look, we're coming up on an hour and we covered a lot of ground. Did I miss anything that you wanted to make sure that you had a chance to talk about? No, I'm fine. I think I'm good. Talked a lot. <laughs> no, that was great. All right. Well, I appreciate it. You sharing your process and a little bit about RPM. And I'm sure we'll have a chance to connect on similar topics in the future. So what time is it there now? It's sort of you're into the evening. It's quarter to five in the afternoon. It's getting dark here. Oh, it's time for a pint. All right. Well, well, it's a Tuesday. So no, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to wait till Thursday. All right. Got it. I wasn't aware of your schedule, but that sounds prudent. All right. Well, look, Alex, thanks so much for sharing your insights and for spending some time with us this evening. And I'm sure we'll chat with you soon. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.